As we get started today, if you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. As always, I want to thank Brother Billy and Sister Peggy for allowing me the opportunity to come and to share what God has put on my heart. I'm excited about sharing with you this morning. It's going to be wonderful. So Matthew chapter 16, we're not going to get into that just yet. We'll we'll jump in there here in just a moment, but you can go ahead and and put your finger there. And if you're taking notes, you can uh, write this down. This will be the title of the message today. It's not what you know, it's who you know. It's not what you know, it's who you know. It's just so you can get to know me a little bit better this morning. I want to share a little story with you. Growing up as a young child, I, I, I grew up in a family that loves the game of baseball. My father was a huge baseball fan, a big Texas Rangers fan, uh, still is. And uh, he got it honestly because even his grandmother, my great-grandmother, she was an avid Texas Rangers fan. She would never miss a game, even in the nursing home in her 90s. If the Rangers were playing, she was watching the television, watching every single pitch, every single swing of the bat. Big, big Texas Rangers fan, as well as a Dallas Cowboys fan. Bless God. And let me tell you, it has not always been easy growing up being a fan of either one of those teams. Uh, As a child, the the Dallas Cowboys had had quite a bit of success, but I don't remember those years. It's been too long ago. Uh, Texas Rangers have have never really enjoyed much success at all, but nevertheless, I kind of inherited uh, fanship, fandom, whatever you want to call it, of these two teams. They've always been my two teams. I've always enjoyed it. I've always loved playing uh, sports as a kid growing up. And, and, uh, but back whenever I was around six or seven years old, the Texas Rangers used to do what they called their winter caravan. And of course, if you're familiar with baseball, it starts in the spring, goes all the way through the summer and ends in the fall. And so the winter is their only time off. It's their only season where they're not actively playing baseball. And, uh, but during this time, the Texas Rangers used to travel around the state of Texas from city to city and used to do what they called their winter caravan, where they would come and they would uh, set up. Sometimes it was in a Whataburger, sometimes it was in a, a, a shopping center, or maybe even just a, a town square. But they would set up these tables and their players and coaches would come out and, and they would sit at these tables in all these various cities and they would sign autographs and shake hands of fans. And, and so whenever I was around six or seven years old, Uh, My dad, I guess he heard about it in the newspaper or maybe saw a commercial on TV for it or something. And and so he told myself and my two older brothers, he asked asked us if we wanted to go and get autographs. They were coming to the Texarkana Central Mall, I believe is what it's called, the the mall up there in Texarkana. And uh, so naturally, as big baseball fans, you know, I was seven, my my, uh, middle brother, he was nine, and my oldest brother was 11, we're two years apart. And we're big baseball fans, so obviously we wanted to go and get some autographs and shake the hands of our favorite baseball players. And I remember, for whatever reason it was, we were late getting there. They were only going to be signing autographs for a couple of hours, and, and whenever we got there to the mall and opened the doors, the line was just as far down the, the hallway of the mall as we could see. 
And I remember my dad, he, he was trying to keep up the enthusiasm. You know, he's talking about baseball, talking about the players and statistics and, and all these kinds of things. But at the same time, he was kind of the voice of reason and reality. And he said, boys, you know, I'm sorry we got here a little bit late. We may not make it up to the front of the line to get our autographs uh, before they're finished. But at least maybe we'll get to see some of the players. And so I guess that kind of sufficed us for a little while. But about two hours into waiting in line, we were nowhere close to getting to the front. And I remember, I, I don't know if you've ever waited in line with young children before, but it's not a fun thing to do at all. But we were waiting there, and, and we start seeing the, the mall security and the Texas Rangers security kind of coming down the, the line talking to people. And so we're thinking, okay, they're about to tell us that we're probably not going to make it to the front of the line, that the Rangers are going to have to go. And, and so sure enough, the security gets over to where we are, and they're like, I'm sorry, folks. Uh, the players are going to have to leave here in about 15 minutes. They're going to sign as many autographs as they can, but they're probably not going to be able to get to everybody today. Just wanted to let you know you may not be able to get an autograph today. And so I remember my little heart just sunk. I was so looking forward to getting to meeting some of my favorite players and getting their autographs. Well, just right after the security officer got done saying that, someone from the tables that was sitting at the table signing autographs, at the very end, he stood up and he said, hang on, hang on. He said, I, I, I know that we're supposed to be wrapping this up here in just a minute, but I just want to let every, every one of our fans know today that if you are here in this line, you will get an autograph before you leave. He said, we are not going to leave until everyone gets an autograph. And you can imagine, after my little heart just sunk, all of a sudden it was just leaping for joy. I was so excited. I couldn't wait. I, I had my baseball in my hand and my, my pen, and I was ready to get up there and, and get my autographs. And, and uh, it was funny because we were the last ones in line, the very last ones in this line. We had seen tons of people open the doors and come up and look at the line and be like, nah, never mind. And they would turn around and walk off, but we stuck around, and so we're the last family in line, my dad and my two brothers and myself. And we get up to the tables, and I'm so excited to see face-to-face -face some of my heroes that I watched on television every night, and, and I hand them my baseball, and they would start autographing it, and I was just going down the line, handing it to person after person, and they would autograph it. And I get to the end of the line. I am the last person, myself and my dad, my two brothers, they're, you know, they don't care about little baby brother, forget him, he can go last, you know, we want to get our autograph, so they had gone ahead of me, and so I was the last kid to get an autograph that day, and as I get to the end of the line, to the end of the table, the man that stood up and told us that, don't worry, everyone will get an autograph, he was, he, whenever I got over to him, he reaches under the table and pulls out an envelope with the Rangers logo on it. And he hands it to me with a big smile on his face. And inside this envelope were four tickets to a Rangers game the next season. Any Rangers game I wanted to go to, four tickets. We could show up and, and enter in and enjoy a ball game. And I remember I was so excited. Like, wow, I got tickets. How lucky am I? It turns out the guy at the end of the table was a man named Johnny Oates. I don't know if you're very familiar 
with baseball. He was a, a longtime baseball player. He was a catcher. He's one of the best defensive catchers to ever play the game, and he was now the Texas Rangers manager. And uh, if you're not familiar with baseball, manager is just a fancy word for saying head coach. And so he was the head coach of the Texas Rangers, and he hands me these tickets. And I, I don't remember exactly how I reacted whenever I got the tickets, but I remember looking down the long line of tables and seeing my, my biggest heroes sitting at that table that I've been fans of for, for all of my seven years. And I remember seeing them looking at me, smiling and, and clapping for me. And I remember thinking, dude, this is awesome. This is great. So they, they smiled, you know, they got to shake everyone's hand, got their autographs. And somehow I failed to get Johnny Oates' autograph in the midst of my excitement. I got the tickets, but didn't get the autograph. This is actually the ball that I took, too. It's got a bunch of autographs on it. But I remember whenever we left the mall that day, I asked my dad, I said, Dad, why did he give me the tickets? And I remember my dad saying something along the lines of, well, he must have known who you were. And as a seven-year-old, you just believe anything your father tells you. So I thought, my goodness, I don't know how he knows me. I don't know where we've met before. But Johnny Oates knows me. And apparently, I know Johnny Oates. I remember thinking, we'll never have to buy tickets to go to a game ever again. All we got to do next winter is go up to the winter caravan. I just go up to my friend Johnny and say, hey, Johnny, how's it going? You got any more tickets? I, mean, I was thinking this as a seven-year-old kid. I was thinking this. Like, this is great. I know Johnny Oates. And for the next, who knows how long, as we'd watch him on TV, every time the camera would go across Johnny Oates, I'd be like, I know him. I know that guy. The reality is, I didn't know Johnny Oates. I shook his hand. He gave me some tickets to go to a game, but I didn't know him, and he didn't know me. And I wonder how many of us Christians treat our relationship with God kind of like the relationship I thought I had with the Rangers manager, where we, we've maybe shook his hand, so to speak. Maybe we've, we've even got an autograph, you know, proverbially. But how many of us truly know God? It's not what you know, it's who you know. See, I can spit off statistics all day about Johnny Oates or all of my favorite baseball players, but I don't know them. I don't know who they are. I can even wear their jersey on my back with their name and their number on my back. That doesn't mean I play for the team. That just means I'm familiar with them. And I think there are a lot of Christians who, who walk around and they... they sincerely believe that they know God, but maybe they're just familiar with who he is. Maybe they're just familiar. In fact, just this last year, the Pew Research poll came out and showed that 65% of American adults describe themselves as Christians when asked about their religion. 65%. I don't know how good you are at math, but that's a majority. 65% of American adults say that they are Christian when asked about their religion. 65%. And I, I saw this statistic and I thought, my goodness, if that's true, we will see unprecedented revival across our country this next year. 
unprecedented. A majority of people saying, hey, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, I follow him, I, I'm obedient to the word of God. We're going to see revival in America. But we all know that polls sometimes aren't always accurate. And those maybe that even claim to be Christian, maybe they don't truly, not all of them anyway, maybe they don't truly know Jesus Christ. Maybe they don't truly know God. And I, I love the statistic, 65%, but I don't know if you know this or if you've ever done any type of research like this, but just one decade ago, not 100 years ago, just one decade ago, that number was 77%. 77%. And so it got me to thinking, you know, if 77% of American adults claim to be Christian, how come the number has decreased? Whenever I was in college, I, me and a couple of my friends that I had just met there at Bible College, uh, we hopped in uh, one of the guys, my roommate's car, and we were going to go out to eat and go watch a movie or go play bowling or something. I don't remember. We were just going to go out and have some fun one night, and, and uh, we got in the car, and, and we were just kind of getting to know each other. We were in that stage. We had several classes together. We kind of hung out on campus, but this was like the first time we were, you know, really starting to develop our relationship, our friendships, and and starting to do things together. And so we went out, and, and I remember my, uh, uh, one of my friends, we, we were talking about music tastes, and, and he said, hand me the aux cord, and he plugged in his phone, and he turned on his music, and it was this uh, Christian, like, screamo music. I don't know if you know what screamo music is, but it's, uh, it, it'll hurt your ears after a while. Uh, it's not my taste of music. <laughs> But uh, it's, you know, got Christian lyrics, Christian words, but, you know, the singers are all like, rah, 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 rah. and this was like his music. He's like, man, you got to listen to this song. And he's playing this song. And so I jokingly, in between songs, whenever we could actually hear something, I, j I made the joke. I said, man, you go to Bible college and you haven't even met Jesus yet. You're just joking with him, you know, like, why do you listen to this stuff? You, you've been to Bible college, you haven't even met Jesus yet. So that's sad. He said, no, what's sad is I've been in the car with three Christians for 30 minutes, and they haven't told me about Jesus yet. And I thought, oh, man. Y'all, that has stuck with me. Listen, we as believers, if we know Christ, then we should be telling others about him. We shouldn't be stuck in our church. We should be going out into the world and telling others about him. Shame on us if we haven't told someone about Jesus lately. Shame on us if we haven't told about the goodness of God lately. We have been given the greatest gift we could ever been given. Why would we hold it in? There's a whole world out there that's dying to know the love of Jesus Christ. Come on, church. So I want to ask you today, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Turn, uh, you can turn with me to Romans chapter 1, but hold your finger there in Matthew chapter 16. We'll also put it up on the screen. Romans chapter 1. It says, but God shows his anger from heaven. That sounds hard. I don't like that much. But this is what it says. God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, this isn't a verse that we'd look at and say, oh, man, I like this. Yeah, you know, revival. I mean, this is one that's kind of like, oh, I got I to gotta really look at, at myself. I, I got to really look and see what this is is really saying, because that, that's some strong words. It says, God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth. Someone say the truth. 
by their wickedness. They know the truth. Someone say, know the truth. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. In other words, if you, and I'm a big advocate for this, just going out into nature and just looking around and looking at the handiwork of God, looking at his creations. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I was in Colorado, and I'll probably share more about that later on, but I was uh, camping on the edge of this meadow, and one evening as I look out, I see these mule deer come out, and I think, wow, those are some big deer. Like, that's incredible, you know, like God made, like God made that. And then a couple of minutes later, five elk come out of the woods, and it made those mule deer look like kittens. And I thought, my goodness, those things are so big, so majestic. They're, just their body structure and the, the antlers on the bull was just incredible, absolutely amazing. And as I'm sitting there watching these elk, I'm not kidding you, two moose come out from the other side. And it made the elk look like little bambies. I mean, they, they, the, the, the young, it was a, 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 I don't know, calf, is that what you call it? A, a young moose, a baby moose. It comes out and it was as big as, as the uh, elk were. And I thought, wow, that's big. And then the mama comes out. This big old cow comes out and I'm thinking, my goodness, that's bigger than my Jeep. Like that thing is huge. And I remember thinking, wow, God made all of this. He created this beautiful scenery that they all just walked out on. It was a gorgeous evening, perfect temperature. It was just beautiful. And I was just, as I was out there, man, I was having my own worship service just all by myself, just there in my tent, just looking out at God's creation, just marveling. And I love this. In Romans chapter 1, it tells us that, that God shows himself through all of the things that he's made. You can look outside and see evidence for God. It's absolutely incredible. He goes on to say, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. No excuse to not know God. It says, yes, they knew God or they knew of God, but they would not worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they begin to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools and instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So we can see here that you can see the evidence of God, you can be told about God, you can know about God, but not really know God. I want to ask you this question today. Do you know Jesus. Like, do you know him? You can read your Bible all day long and, and, and learn some things about him, but do you know him? And I, I try to challenge my students all the time. Hey, listen, you cannot borrow your parents' relationship with God. You cannot borrow my, as your youth pastor, you cannot borrow my relationship with God. You have to know God for yourself. For yourself. Hmm. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. This is so good. I love this. Paul is writing this. He says, yes, everything else is worthless 
when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Listen to this next part. This is great. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. I love Paul. He, he is uh, he's one of my favorites. The Bible scholars pretty much unanimously agree that Paul was the, the greatest apostle. He was a, an incredible, uh, he was an incredible writer. He wrote this sermon or this instruction to the church in Philippi. And apparently he wasn't the best speaker, public speaker, because it tells us that one day he was preaching. Apparently he was long-winded. He'd been preaching for a long time. There's a guy sitting in the upstairs uh, window. He falls asleep, falls out of the window, dies. He just straight up dies. So Paul has to stop in the middle of his sermon. He goes down uh, outside the house where the guy had fallen and died. And uh, he, he brings him back to life. Goes upstairs, starts preaching again. And I don't consider myself to be the greatest pastor ever. And I know that Paul was the, the greatest apostle. And so I'm, you know, I'm kind of thinking, well, maybe I've got something going on. Because to my knowledge, no one has ever died during one of my sermons. Like, Paul was great. He was a fantastic, fantastic, uh, maybe not orator, but a fantastic writer. Because if you look through his writings, you're like, my goodness, that's some good stuff. And here's the thing about Paul. He doesn't pull, he doesn't hold back. I mean, he, he's, he's pulling some punches. He's going to say what he feels. He's pretty bold. He, he talks pretty loudly. He, he says whatever God puts on his heart, and, and it's no different here because in this uh, particular verse, Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, he says, I discard everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ or so that I could gain in my knowledge and in, in my relationship with Christ. Now, this word I'm reading from the NLT today, and it, he says, I count it all as garbage. If you're reading from the New King James, it might say rubbish. Uh, there are other, I like it, rubbish. makes me feel British whenever I say that. Uh, you might be reading from another translation that, that says dung. Well, in the Greek, whenever you read this in the Greek, the Greek word is skubalon. Here's the definition of skubalon. This is what Paul is saying whenever he writes this. He's saying, for his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as, here's the, the uh, direct translation of this word, the most worthless parts of excrement. Paul! This is one of his, his classic uh, Bible object lessons here. Like, I love to have something to, to look at whenever I preach and, and talk. It just helps me to kind of stay focused. And here's Paul. He's given this, this, uh, this Bible object lesson here. He says, listen, I, I think everything is worthless compared to knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. In fact, I count everything as the most worthless parts of excrement so that I could gain Christ. I don't know about y'all. I'm not a biologist. I don't want to get... I don't want to say anything too crude up here. But I thought all excrement was worthless. I mean, I don't have a whole lot of use for excrement. And for some of y'all that are here, it's like, what? Poop, all right? I don't have a whole lot of use for poop. There's, it doesn't, 
It doesn't bring me joy. I can't use it. You know, anyway, I mean, I guess if you're a farmer, maybe you can fertilize some plants or something like that. But, but I pretty much, I thought all parts were pretty useless. But Paul, he takes it a step further. He says, man, I count it besides knowing Jesus. Compared to knowing Jesus, everything else is as worthless as the most worthless parts of poop. Tell us how you really feel about Jesus, Paul. Like, let us know. Like, is, is this real? Like, he's serious. He's saying there is nothing more valuable than knowing Jesus. You can never build up enough wealth that could take the place of knowing Jesus. You could never uh, be, become so influential around your circle of people that it would ever take the place or give you better benefits than knowing Jesus. There is nothing more important than knowing Jesus. And here's what I find most fascinating about this, this one scripture in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Whenever Paul is writing this, he hasn't just raised someone from the dead. He hasn't experienced just bam, 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 bam of the mighty miraculous things of God in that moment. Do you want to know where he was in this moment where he wrote this? He was in prison. He was in prison. He could have said, man, I, I count everything else as garbage compared to knowing Jesus Christ, but I really wish he would give me freedom because freedom would be pretty valuable right now. Do you want to know what he was in prison for? It wasn't drugs. It wasn't abuse. It wasn't not paying speeding tickets or whatever the case may be. He was in prison because he knows Jesus, because he knew the living God. That is why he's in prison. That's the only reason he's in prison. And this is what he says, man, there is nothing more valuable than knowing God, my freedom included, justice included, liberty included. Nothing else is valuable compared to knowing Jesus. Now, he's not saying that nothing else has any value. Obviously, we know freedom, justice, liberty. As Americans, we hold those things dear to our hearts. And we, I mean, that's something that we almost, we find it hard to even separate from anything biblical. But I love that Paul says this. He says, man, I count, I, I count freedom as being more worthless than the most worthless parts of poop compared to knowing Jesus. I would rather be in a prison and know Jesus than to be anywhere else in this world and having a clue who he is. Love Paul. Love those words. And I, I know you, you may be sitting there kind of a little bit uncomfortable. Like, you know, you go home and eat dinner, lunch with your family that's maybe gone to another church. And, what, what did y'all talk about this morning? We talked about poop. Yeah. You may be a little bit uncomfortable, but I love that analogy because it, it sets a precedent for me that there could never be anything worth doing unless I do it with Jesus, knowing Jesus. Come on, he is good. He is good. Just to know Jesus. Oftentimes I've, I've felt envious of the disciples. who They got to walk with Jesus. They got to see Jesus do things, like literally go from town to town, city to city with him, and watch him do the miraculous things he did. And I, I've kind of oftentimes felt pretty 
envious of them. But here's the thing that we have that they didn't at that time. Today, we have the opportunity to have Jesus inside of us, to have the Holy Spirit inside of us. We get to walk every single day, not just with him by our side, but inside of us. But here's the question we've got to ask. Do I know Jesus? Who is Jesus to me? So Matthew chapter 16, we're finally there. I'm sorry it took so long. Matthew chapter 16 says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah or the Christ, the anointed one, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John or Jonah, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. I want to set the scene for this for just a minute. If the worship team would gather together, it would be great. Jesus takes the disciples to Caesarea Philippi. This was up on the, the northern side, way, way above the Sea of Galilee. It was, a, it was north of where Jesus and the disciples lived. It was, their hometown was in Capernaum, and this was, this was north of that. And this area was predominantly occupied by Gentiles, by heathens, by unbelievers. And Jesus takes them to Caesarea Philippi. It doesn't tell us really what, much of a reason why, but he takes them there, and, and while he's there, they're looking over this one place where they were. They're looking over. Uh, they're on the edge of, on the side of this mountain, and they're looking over into this uh, geological feature. It was kind of like a spring of water that had come up out of this rock, out of this mountain. And it was believed back in this day that that was the uh, entrance to hell. They believed that, that, that Satan and his demons, they would come in and out of the world uh, from the center of the world. This was their belief. They would come in and out of the world uh, through this little hole, through this spring, through this well that was in there in the side of the rock. And, and where Jesus takes them is right there in this area where that would have been. And, and there were shrines and, and temples and stuff built to, to various gods there. And, and so that's where Jesus takes them, to one of the most heathenistic places probably uh, imaginable. And they're sitting there overlooking all of this stuff, representing all the gods of the world. And Jesus asked them, he said, hey, guys, who, who do people say that I am? They say, well, you know, I, I can imagine, you know, Peter, you know, says, well, you know, some say that uh, you, you're uh, John the Baptist. Here's Matthew over here. Well, you know, I've heard some people say that you're Elijah. 
and then here's Thomas over there. I've heard that, you know, some, some say you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. I don't know. I doubt it. That was a Thomas joke. Anyways. Who do people say that I am? Here's Jesus showing them the most heathenistic people and all their gods and temples erected. Who do people say that I am? Well, you know, back home, people say that you're John the Baptist or Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. They're comparing them. Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? Because you can look at what every other culture says about me. You can hear what every other person says about me. But you have to make a determination for yourself. Who do you say that I am? Who am I to you? Do you know me? Do you know me? So here's my three points all in five minutes right here. To know Jesus, number one, you have to follow him. You have to follow. How do I get to know Jesus? Follow him. In this uh, portion of scripture, in Matthew chapter 16, it says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus got there, the disciples were there because they followed him. Jesus just, I'm just going to Caesarea Philippi. The disciples followed him. Listen, if you want to know Jesus, you're going to have to follow him. You're going to have to follow him. Because you, you can hear what everybody else, your, your spouse, your parents, your, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, you can hear anything that they have to say about him. But unless you follow him for yourself, you will never know him. You will never know him. You have to follow him for yourself. Here's the second, second thing. If you want to know Jesus, you have to listen to him. You have to listen to him. There's a lot of other voices out there. They're saying, hey, you're John the Baptist. Well, John the Baptist was a political revolutionary. He was preparing the way for Jesus, but he kind of stuck his finger in a lot of political things too, and, and he ended up getting his head chopped off because he, he told Herod that he shouldn't be marrying his sister-in-law, and that was kind of weird. And, and so, I mean, he, let's just be real. He was revolutionary. He didn't care about the system. He didn't care about the governor or the or the, well, he didn't care about Pilate or Herod or any of these guys. He, he just went out and just shared with them everything that God put on his heart, which is fantastic. It's great. People are saying, he's, he's like John the Baptist. He's kind of causing a stir. He's, he's kind of rippling the waters over here. He's, he's kind of revolutionary. He's got some new ideas, some new thoughts. And he's kind of like John the Baptist. Some say, well, he's like Elijah. Well, Elijah, you, you know, Elijah, he did... Lots of incredible, miraculous things. Incredibly miraculous things. And people are watching Jesus, not really knowing what to make of him, but they're seeing him heal the blind. They're seeing him raise the dead. They're seeing him do all these things. That thought, we've, we've never seen this in our lifetimes before. We've heard about Elijah doing it, but we've never seen it. Maybe he's just like Elijah. And some people are like, hey, I love his teaching. I, I love to go to all of his sermons. You know, the boring people. I love to sit there and listen to him teach. He's kind of like Jeremiah. You know, he's got some good things to say. Like one of the other prophets, he, he, he speaks words, and I think he's speaking the word of God. Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? 
the other people, they can have their opinions. They can think what they want to, but you're going to have to make a determination in your heart. Who am I to you? Here's point number three. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to make your own decision. You have to make your own decision about him. And here's where it gets a little tricky. Because I know that there's some, there's some in this room today who would say, I, I find it hard to follow Jesus because I've just got so many questions. I find it hard to really give him my life and to walk with him and to live in obedience to his word because I, I've just got so many unanswered questions. I've just got so many things that, that just doesn't make sense. I'm struggling with, with things in my life and and there just seems to be no justice. There seems to be no, no mercy or grace or forgiveness or any of these things in my life. And I've just got so many questions. Can I, can I encourage you today, if that's you, if you came in here saying, I, I just don't know if I can give God my heart because I've just got so many questions. Can I encourage you today to give your questions to God? I'm not saying give your questions up. I'm saying take your questions to God. Listen, Jesus is not scared of questions. Did you know in the Gospels, it's recorded, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus was asked 183 questions. People came to Jesus and asked him 183 questions. Do you want to take a guess at how many of those he directly answered? Three. Good guess. That's great. Jesus answered three questions out of 183. Now, here's the thing about Jesus. He directly answered three questions. Now, he answered their questions, but a lot of times he answered questions with a, with a question. Jesus is famous for answering questions with a question. He said, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? What's Jesus' answer? Whose head is on the coin? <laughs> John's disciples said, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Here's Jesus' answer. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Wait, Jesus, we, we were talking about fasting. You're talking about weddings? Like, what? I just, I just asked you a question. Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus' answer, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? He was famous about answering questions with questions. With questions. His disciples come to him and they say, Jesus, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And, and Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? Listen, Jesus is not afraid of your questions. In fact, he was asked 183 questions. Do you want to guess how many questions Jesus asked? Now, we're, we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about Jesus, the one who has all of the answers. He was asked 183 questions. Jesus asked 307 questions. He had all the answers, but he's asking most of the questions. Here's what I want to encourage you with today. If you have questions about God, that's okay. 
You don't have to be ashamed of it. So many of us, we think we've got to get everything figured out before we can step into anything. I love the internet. I don't buy anything on the internet without reading about 400 reviews. If I go to Amazon, I see one thing, it can be $5 more than the exact same thing from a different seller. If it's got 500 reviews on this side and three reviews on this side, I will spend the extra $5 to go with the, the product where I've seen more reviews. I do not buy anything without researching and looking it up, seeing reviews, anything. I just bought a, a, a Leatherman the other day. There's like a dozen different models of Leatherman. And I'm going through looking at all the reviews. It's the same company, same people, same builders, but some of them don't seem to work quite as well or last as long as, as some of the others. And some of these features are better than they are on this particular model. And that's the way I am. I, I got to try to figure things out before I'll make a commitment. But can I encourage you today, if you came in this place and you're like, man, I'm struggling. I've got some questions. Can I encourage you today to just take those questions to Jesus? See, the thing about our relationship with God is that it requires faith. And there are going to be some questions that you have that you may not be able to answer. Can I be honest with y'all? There is more about the Word of God that I don't know than there is that I do know. Well, aren't you supposed to be a pastor? Maybe I'm not a very good one. <laughs> Here's the thing. I may not know all the answers, but I do know Jesus. I do know Jesus. And there are things that, that don't make sense to me that happen in this world, but I do know Jesus. And there are things that are unsettling, but I do know Jesus. There is nothing more valuable than knowing Jesus. If you would please stand to your feet today. I want to ask you this question. Who is Jesus to you? Who is he to you? Because you're going to have to make that determination in your life, whether it's today or some other day, you're going to have to make that determination. Who is Jesus to you? Here's the last portion of scripture I want to share. It's Acts chapter 17, verse 27. I love this. This is good. This is going to give us some encouragement, some hope this morning. It says, His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Though, He is not far from any one of us. Y'all, I have lived on this scripture so many seasons in my life because it gives me hope I may not have all the answers but I can feel around <laughs> I can seek for him I can I can feel around here and there and here's the beautiful part you'll find him you'll find him because here's the truth he's not far from any one of us he's right here in this place and so I want to encourage you today if you're the person that came and said man I've got questions I've got questions in my heart, and I just, I've been wanting so long to give my heart to God, but I just don't know. I don't know. I, I just got to have some answers. Then I want to invite you to, to just take the moment to say, God, you know, I may not have the answers, but I want to know you, and I want to put my faith in you, and I want to feel my way towards you. And so today I'm going to give my heart 
to that pursuit, to seeking you. If that's you, then God has already been speaking to you and he's already impressed that on your heart this morning. Some of you may say, man, I, I feel like I've known Jesus all my life. I feel like I grew up knowing God. But you're probably going through a situation that seems scary or daunting or, or confusing. This morning, I want you to ask yourself, who is God to me? If things turn out for the worst, am I still gonna trust him or am I gonna be angry with him? Who is God to you? Who do you say that he is? So for just a moment, the worship team is gonna lead us in a, in a song and I want you just to take this moment to ask you, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me this morning? What are you saying to me? And just allow him to speak to you and just listen, keep your heart open, keep your mind open, keep your ears open to anything he would have to say to you. Take your questions to him. Ask him, God, what are you wanting to say to me in this moment? What, what, what is going on? Why can't I understand? Why is this cloudy? Why is this confusing? Take those questions and just spend just the, just the next couple of minutes. We're not going to be here all day. Just spend just the next couple of minutes asking him, God, what do you want to do in my heart today? Caught up in your prayer.